1: The Passover was the apex of Israel's witness to the world that Yahweh is Lord. And if you'll remember this festival, remembered God's great deliverance of Israel from the tyranny of Egypt. Israel was enslaved to Egypt for 400 years, and through a series of 10 plagues, God broke the grip of Pharaoh and freed his people. The plague that finally tipped the scales, was the Lord's striking down of every firstborn in the land of Egypt. That is, every firstborn except the Jewish children who avoided this judgment by slaughtering an unblemished lamb and smearing the blood on their doorposts. Every year after this great deliverance, the Jewish people would gather, share the Passover meal, and remember that their God is is the God who saves. And on the night before Jesus was crucified, he gathered his disciples to share this meal. But this Passover meal was not just like any other Passover meal. Our Lord took the unleavened bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He then took the cup And said, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Our Lord took the elements from the Passover and transformed them into the Lord's Supper. The bread that that once stood for affliction now stands for the body of Christ. The cup that once represented the animal's blood now stands for the blood of Jesus shed for the, for the forgiveness of sins. When God's people gather to remember that our God saves, we no longer look back to the Exodus and celebrate the Passover, but we look to Jesus and we celebrate the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians eleven, seventeen to 34 Paul is addressing the abuse of this holy sacrament. This section comes in the larger context Of Paul's instructions for proper worship, which you guys began last week in 1 Corinthians 11.2. And Paul has one intention for this section, and it's this, is that your witness hinges on your unity, that your testimony depends on your unity, and unity finds its apex at the Lord's Supper. We're going to look at Paul's address in three sections. The first is this Stop the Madness, verses 17 to 22. The second is Proclaim the Lord Jesus, 23 to 26. And finally, Test Yourselves, 27 to 34. Let's begin with the first section Stop the Madness, verses 17 to 22. Look at verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. See, in contrast to verse 2, where Paul praised the Corinthians because they had obeyed some of the doctrine that he taught them, Paul says there is no praise for you in regard to the Lord's Supper. Why? Look at the scripture. Because you you come together, not for the better, but for the worse in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear divisions exist among you. And in part, I believed it. Now, we learned in chapter 1 that the Corinthians were divided over their teachers. We learned in chapter 6 that they were dragging each other to court and suing each other. So the Corinthians have a very healthy track record of division. And Paul has already addressed it on multiple occasions. And so, why is Paul focusing on division once again? You know, we're going to see that the problems that Paul addresses are favoritism and an irreverence for the Lord's Supper. And so, why not address either of those problems, Paul? And I think the answer is because division in the church is serious. Division in the church is really serious. After Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper, he prayed for us in his high priestly prayer. He asked the Father in John 17, verse 21, that they, speaking of us, may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. And that they also, and that they also may be in us, so that, what do we think he said? So that God may be glorified? It's true. That's not what the text says. So that many might be saved. It's also true. But that's not what the text says. It's it John 17, verse 21. That they may all be one, so that the, word, the world may believe that you sent me. God's testimony to the world that Jesus is the son of God is the unity in his church. Mark it this is important. God's testimony is the unity in his church. That's unity between Jew and Gentile, between slave and free, between man and woman, between parent and child. And when Paul says that I hear that division exists among you, what he's saying is that the body of Christ is being ripped and torn, chewed up and spit out. In Corinthians, that's your witness to the watching world. That's what the world thinks about Christians because of the division in your church. And yet, in God's sovereign will, he uses even this for his purposes. Look with me at verse 19. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are proved may become evident to all. Paul says that this division is necessary. It's not an option. It is a requirement that division is produced among you. And why? So that those who are approved may become evident among you. The word approved is the word for something that has passed the test. In this context, Paul is talking about passing the test of God. He is saying that division must happen. And factions must form so that the faithful saints who cling to the truth might become evident. And we're familiar with this. COVID pretty much literally happened three years ago. Raise your hand with me if you know someone who used to go to church all the time and then COVID happened and they never came back. On the other hand, raise your hand if you know somebody whom God radically saved or grew a ton because of the coronavirus. Amen. God used a virus to purify his church. And it was the same principle that applied in Corinth. John says in 1 John 2.19 that they. And John is talking about false teachers here. But by application, this can apply to anybody who claims Christ and proves to not be a true believer. He says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out. Why? So that it would be manifested that they were not of us. Conversely, James says in James 1.12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. The point is clear. Division, as sinful as it is, must occur in the church so that God can purify it. And what did this look like in Corinth? Look at 20 20, 20 and 21. Therefore, When you meet together in the same place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. See, the early church often attached the Lord's Supper to the end of what they called the love feast. Now, the love feast was essentially a first century CNYA family dinner, like a big potluck. (laughs) And the point of the love feast was to gather, to fellowship, to share a common meal, and all of this was an outworking of the unity in the body of Christ. And to cap off the feast, uh, the church would more intentionally remember their oneness in Christ by partaking of the Lord's table. Now, the Corinthians had turned this whole love feast on its head. They turned it into a drunken and a gluttonous party. The wealthy were getting there early and eating all the food. And then when the poor would come later, they would say, you missed it. It's all gone. And Paul's at a loss for words. He's trying to find some logical explanation for their actual bizarre behavior. And look at verse 22. He says, for you don't have houses in which to eat and drink. He says, the best case scenario is this, is that you are very confused about why we are gathering and you need to have a snack before you come to church. You need to go home and make a sandwich so that you're not coming to our gathering starving. And he says, worst case scenario, look at the text, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? He says, maybe these unruly church members I actually hate God. I want to sow division in this church to destroy it. And whatever it is, Paul says, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Paul says you miss the point of the Lord's Supper. It's not a buffet. It's not a hangout. And then what is it, you ask? Good question. Look at the next section. Verse, or section number two. Proclaim the Lord Jesus. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Now, why can't Paul praise the Corinthians for their warped attempt at the Lord's Supper? Because this supper was commanded by the Lord Jesus himself. Correct observance of the Lord's Supper is not an option. It's a command. And here's the Lord's Supper delivered to us. Look at the text. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was being betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, the cup that once stood for the Lamb's blood now represents the blood of the Lamb of God shed for the forgiveness of sins. And the bread that once stood for affliction now represents the body of Jesus. And now, to Jesus' original audience, the word body wouldn't just refer to his physical body. Rather, body for the Jew would encompass all that a person stood for. And so when Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you, it's a call for us to stop and to contemplate his whole person and work. To contemplate his eternality. That in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1.1. 1, 1. To contemplate his incarnation, that though being rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. Jesus became a man, Jesus put on human flesh, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Second Corinthians eight nine. It's a call to contemplate his earthly life. First Peter two twenty-one says he did no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Jesus' life was sinless perfection. He was absolutely righteous. We must contemplate his teaching, that Jesus said, repent and believe, for the kingdom is at hand. Turn from your sin and live. We must contemplate his substitutionary death, that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We must contemplate His resurrection. That Jesus is the first fruits of those who have died in Him. Translation: His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And finally, we must contemplate His ascension. First Peter 3:22 says that Jesus is at the right hand of God, is right now, present tense, at the right hand of God, with angels and authorities and powers subjected to him. And Romans 8.34 says that he is right now praying for us. And Jesus said to do all of this in remembrance of him. And now, I need to ask you a question Is this how you approach the Lord's table? Do you discipline yourself to consider that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but that you were purchased with the blood of Christ? Do you take the time to meditate on the body of Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection? Or is the Lord's table just another stale cracker and a sip of grape juice to you. I hope it's not. And here's why. Look at 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Now, these aren't the words of Jesus. This is this is Paul's reasoning in verse 26. And what does he mean? I think the answer has everything to do with Paul's intent for this section of Scripture. Do you remember earlier how we talked about how uh, there's division in the church is extremely serious? That it's an issue because our testimony depends on our unity. See, When we take the Lord's Supper, we remember the Lord's work. And remembering that our Lord humbled himself, even to death on a cross for us, ought to humble us as well. Such that we live so in awe of Jesus that we can do nothing else except count others as more significant than ourselves and love one another. And in loving one another, tune in right now, if you've been tuning me out. And in loving one another, unity in the church is maintained and Jesus is proclaimed. That's Paul's point right here. That's why he wrote verse 26. Verse 26 is Paul's reason for writing this whole section. Because in the Lord's Supper, we as believers publicly proclaim our solidarity with Jesus in our unity with one another. And remember that the faithfulness of our testimony depends on our unity. So just as Israel gathered every year for the Passover to publicly, publicly proclaim that Yahweh is Lord, today the church gathers for the Lord's Supper to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. So, Paul's purpose in verse 26 is to tell us that right practice of the Lord's Supper is the apex of our witness to a watching world. You proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes, it means the unity displayed at the Lord's Supper is the trumpet blast to the world that Jesus is Lord. And when you partake of the Lord's Supper this Sunday, in right standing before the Lord, in love for one another, you are publicly proclaiming to principalities and powers and to the world that Jesus Christ is mission accomplished, that he paid for sin, that his resurrection was real, that he really did ascend, and that he's really coming back. And the Corinthian church had a weak witness at best because of their division. And so look at Paul's instruction for them in our third section. This is test yourself. Test yourself, 27 to 34. Verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. To eat or drink in an unworthy manner means that we partake of the Lord's supper in any heart posture other than contrition, And reverence. In Corinth, the unworthy heart postures were favoritism for the rich, a lack of love for one another, and a failure to recognize the holiness of the Lord's Supper. I think that we can stumble into any of these, but I think additionally, we fall into religious formalism, just going through the motions, not thinking about what we're doing, eat the cracker, drink the cup, get out. I think that we can fall into having unrepentant sin, being consciously aware that we have something to confess to the Lord or to a brother or to a sister and not doing so, but taking the Lord separate anyway. And finally, I think that a serious one could be residing bitterness or animosity between you and another Christian if we allow that animosity and that bitterness to fester, we do the exact opposite of unity that should be displayed at the Lord's Supper. And look at the consequences for taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. You shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. I think an illustration is, is best fit to help us understand this. Imagine that you had a nice, large American flag. And now imagine that you just torched the whole thing. You just burned it completely. You and I both know that you didn't just burn cloth. When you burn an American flag, you dishonor all that that flag represents. You dishonor all of the people that fought for that freedom. And in the same way, to come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner is to dishonor all that the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus represents. We make light of his perfect life. We mock his substitutionary death. And we treat God as just normal. But here's how we ought to approach the Lord's table. Verse 28. But a man must test himself. And in so doing, he's to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is the same testing that we talked about earlier in verse 19 that makes a man approved. This means we must examine our actions, our words, our thoughts, and our intentions to see if there's any sin in our heart that we can repent of before approaching the Lord. And notice the reflexive pronoun in verse 28. A man must test who? His brother? No. His son? No. A man must test himself. There is a time to confront our brothers and our sisters over sin. But at the Lord's table, the Lord's people must thoroughly examine themselves. And here's why. Look at 29 and 30. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and in number sleep. A failure to properly test yourself may lead to sickness and even death, as it did for the Corinthians. And look at the specific sin that the Corinthians were committing. Verse 29, he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not, what? Judge the body rightly. The body here is a, it's shorthand for the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus, referenced in verse 27. And Paul is saying that the Corinthians are suffering because of their failure to honor the Lord's Supper as holy. And now, this judgment is not, is not condemnation. He's not taking their salvation away. It's a disciplinary judgment but it still should be taken seriously. Notice, people are, people are sick and people are, are dying. And so guys, we need to ask ourselves, how do we approach the Lord's table? Do we approach the Lord's table with fear of God? Paul says that if we don't, we eat and drink judgment to ourselves. And yet God is still merciful. He is still So kind. He says that we don't have to have this discipline. You don't have to be weak and dying because of your sin. Look at verse 31. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. If the Corinthians would confess to God and say, I'm the sinner, it's me, I'm the one who fell short, I'm the one who keeps coming to your Lord's table and taking it irreverently. I'm the one who keeps sowing division amongst the brothers. Then he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And yet, the Corinthians remained under the Lord's judgment because of their, get it, unwillingness to repent. And have you ever considered that continued judgment may be the most loving thing that God could do for the Corinthians. Look at verse 32. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says, My son, do not reject the discipline of Yahweh or loathe his reproof. For whom Yahweh loves, he reproves even as a father reproves the son in whom he delights. Yes, this passage, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen thirty four 34, is a rebuke. But don't miss the grace. Don't miss the kindness of our Lord in telling the Corinthians this. Because why does God judge the Corinthians? He says so that they wouldn't go to hell with the rest of the world. And if the Corinthians would turn from their sin, would God even delay in offering forgiveness. No. He is faithful and he is righteous. That is who God is. That is his character. And because he's faithful and righteous, we are forgiven of our sins. The only question in that sentence is if you will repent. The only question for the Corinthians was whether or not they would confess their sin to the Lord. And the same is true for us tonight. If you're an unbeliever here and you think that you're too far gone or anything along those lines, God is faithful and he is righteousness and he is righteous in his character. And so if you would confess your sin and turn from it and believe upon Jesus, you will be saved tonight. Because He is by nature a saving God, Ezekiel 33:11 says, "I, this is the Lord, take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from His way and live. Unbeliever in the room. It is not the Lord's will that you would perish, but His will that you'd repent from your sins and live today. The only question is whether or not you will confess your sin. If the Corinthians chose to repent, how should their practice change? Look at 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Practical repentance tip number one eat together. Demonstrate the unity in the body of Christ by waiting to eat with one another. And verse 34. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not toge- come together for judgment. Practical repentance tip number two. Recognize that the purpose of the Lord's Supper is not to satisfy physical hunger, but to proclaim the Lord Jesus until he comes. And Paul finishes by saying, the remaining matters I will direct when I come. And so guys, what about us? When we take the Lord's Supper this Sunday, what will our testimony be? Do we proclaim that Jesus is Lord? Or when we partake of the Lord's Supper, do we look as self-centered and broken as the rest of the world? I pray that at Trinity Community Church, our testimony would be clear. That Jesus is Lord and he's coming back soon. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your gracious warning. Thank you for your gracious rebuke to the Corinthians. Lord, it's profound that in remembering you, in partaking of the bread and the cup, that something supernatural happens, that we proclaim to powers, to authorities, to the world that you have won, that Jesus is Lord. I pray for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that as we approach this Sunday, when we will partake of the Lord's table, that you will show us our sin in our heart, that we may repent, and that we may come to your table with clean consciences remembering the Lord Jesus Christ and excited because what we partake of, what we partake of is not just normal and supernatural. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. And if you're interested in a great Bible college here in the area, check out calchristiancollege.edu. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.